Hey there, everyone. Thank you for welcoming me to wherever you are today. Today is another awesome opportunity we have to dig into the Word of God together, to to build upon the promises of God that have been put into our hearts and our lives throughout this entire year of 2021. We have been building on the promises of God week by week by week by week. It's been another promise and another promise and another promise. Building blocks in our lives that God has given us the opportunity to grow in Him, to grow through Him, and that in all of that, that we would look more like Jesus than we did yesterday or last week or at the beginning of this year, that what we do looks a little bit more like Jesus, that the fruit of the Spirit is flowing through our lives. And today we have another great opportunity, James chapter 4. James 4 is our promise this week, and we're going to be in verse number 7, but we're going to be in a couple other verses, and we're going to look at the context of this promise as always. Right? It's never like, hey, here's this one verse. Let me just fire it off at you. We want to really know what's going on in this. We want to dig into this. We want to know, like, what's happening? What's the backstory in this? Like, what's the narrative of this whole thing? If he's given this promise and this amazing word, like, what is the context of that? Because sometimes we can read that one verse and we don't, we don't understand the true power of it because we don't understand the scenario and what's happening. In the book of James, he is writing we can see to the 12 tribes and those who have been dispersed all over the world. And he's bringing this amazing word and he's talking about the trials. He's talking about trials that they faced. He's talking about all the things that that has happened and all the things, uh, actually the qualities that you need to have to be able to walk through. He, he talks about some very familiar things like be doers of the word, not hearers only because they had gotten into a pattern of, Hey, I'm hearing, I'm hearing, I'm hearing, but then it became more of less doing, right? I'm hearing, but I'm not doing as much. And what we find out is in the context of all this is what began to happen is there were different factions and now there was starting to be personal favoritism toward one another. Then there started to be some some selfishness that settled in and hey, I wanna keep this for myself and not just like the word from the Lord, but even like their giving and all different types of things begin to happen. And then all of a sudden they begin to believe that, okay, what I'm doing now is, is not just an ex, uh, an exhibit of my faith but what I'm doing now is the stamp that says right that I'm saved and that's where James comes in and says hey listen faith without works is dead yes but it's not all about works it's about faith but faith without works is dead he's bringing a balance to these believers he begins to talk to them about what they say and how they say it that motives matter, like what comes out of your mouth and, and the motive behind that matters. And he's been bringing all this stuff. And then he talks about this interesting dichotomy of heavenly wisdom versus demonic wisdom. He like takes this deep dive in the middle of everything. And he talks about, listen, when you go after your fleshly desires and your selfishness, that, that is an earthly demonic wisdom, quote unquote that would say, hey, I can do this because this, this, and this, and that's not a bad thing, it's a good thing. But then he shifts it and he talks about a heavenly wisdom. And then he's talking about peace and gentleness and and yielding and mercy and grace. And he talks about all these amazing things. And then he goes into this amazing deep dive of, hey, where does pride come from? Like he's asking this question. 
Where does pride come from? Where does this root of selfishness come from? And then he says this, does it not come from you? <laughs> like, like there's amazing question of, listen, where do fights come from? Where do quarrels come from? Where does all this confusion and chaos come from? Where does this anger come from? And he says, it comes from you. It comes from me, my selfish desire. My selfish desires, my fleshly lusts, right, are what quarrels are all about. Fights are, why am I fighting this person? Because I want my way. Why am I quarreling about this? Why am I gossiping about this? Why am I angry about this? Why am I bitter? Why am I, and James says, listen, it's not everybody else. It's me. Where does it come from? It comes from me because I can't have what I want. I, I can't do what I want. I, 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 I. And then he says, listen, you're fighting and you're warring, yet you do not have it because you do not ask. And then he says, and when you ask, you're asking with the wrong motives. Like you're, you're totally off base. So all this, right, brings us to our promise. But verse six, right before you get to the promise, he says, but he gives more grace. Listen, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And that's the entry point to this promise. All this strife, all these things, all this unrest, all this confusion, all these things. And he's writing it not just to one group of people in one location. He's writing it to believers all over that have been dispersed all over. And some of the same characteristics are happening all over the place within believers. That tells you that the enemy, the enemy was coming against. The enemy was trying to stop what God was trying to do. And James gives this amazing word. And then here's our promise, verse seven. Therefore, therefore what? God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, if you want grace, right? Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. All right? Say that with me. Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. One more time. Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now that is an amazing promise from God's word. But what does it mean to submit to God? What does it mean to resist the devil? Well, we want to go a little bit deeper. I want, I want to go a little bit deeper with you today rather than just the context. Let's go to the verses right after that, 8, 9, and 10. And I'm going to talk to you today about a Decalogue. <laughs> Come on, say that with me. Decalogue. Say it again. Decalogue. Put it in the chat right now. D-E-C-A-L-O-G-U-E. Hopefully I got that right. D-E-C-A-L-O-G-U-E. Decalogue. Now, what does Decalogue mean? Decalogue, if you look at the Greek for Decalogue, it means 10 words. Decalogue is used in Exodus chapter 20 where it talks about the 10 commandments, right? The 10 commandments, 10 words. Well, what we find in James chapter four, verse seven, eight, nine, and 10 is a Decalogue. It is 10 words. It is 10 commands. It is, it is 10 segments that say, hey, if you want to achieve this, if you want to get to this, do these things, just like the Ten Commandments. It was like, thou shalt not, but it wasn't just about nots, it's about what you're supposed to be doing, right? And if you're doing these things, you won't do these other things. 
If you are following God, if you are leaning into God, if you are focused on God and not focused on your selfish desires, then these things will not be the fruit of your life. James turns around and says, listen, it's not about not doing these things. He's saying, here's what you do and it will keep you from these things. Decalogue. Say it again. Decalogue. So we find it in 7, 8, 9, and 10. So let's look at the first one, right? Therefore, submit to God. Now, what does that mean? Well, number one, it means that there is a word in that little phrasing that our flesh hates. Submit. Like, my flesh doesn't want to submit to anybody. I want my way. You say, well, well, Scott, you know, are you just a selfish, mean, angry guy? No. Like, I feel like I'm a, I'm a pretty good guy, but in my flesh, I still don't want to submit because in myself, I still want what Scott wants. We hear that word submit, and immediately we just kind of, it's not that we freeze up, but there's just this thing because that's our flesh. Submit to God. Now, when you say submit to God, we hear that word submit, right? And we don't like that. But the second thing in that little phrasing is this. In order to submit to God, you've got to be brutally honest with yourself. Like honest, brutally honest with yourself. In order to submit to God, you have got to be honest with where you're at, honest with who you are, honest with what you're doing. Because submission to God means that we're coming to God, we're leaning into God and we're saying, Lord, it's not my will, but it's your will. I'm completely submitted to you. Lord, I have to be honest. I've been selfish. I have to be honest. Lord, these quarrels and these fights and this gossiping, this bitterness that, I, that I'm involved in, it's all me. It's coming from me. I've been selfish. Like you have to be honest. So when you submit to God, you've got to be honest. This, this whole decalogue of 10 words, 10 commands. Number one, submit to God. Being honest with yourself and being honest with God. He knows you already and he knows the thoughts and the intents of your heart. And he knew you before you were formed in your mother's womb. Why would we not want to be honest with the one who created us in his own image even as he knows everything? Think about that for a second. Why do we pull away from God and not be honest with him when he already knows everything? Because when we submit to God and we're honest with God, then we have to be honest with ourselves. And when we're honest with ourselves, that's when we find out that it's not everybody else's fault, but it's me. And that's a harsh, that is a harsh truth to learn. Sometimes in our lives, we go through seasons where, man, we feel like life is good, but in essence, it really isn't good. Things seem to be going our way, but it's really not happening that way. What's really happening is we're really not honest about anything. Our relationships aren't deep. Our relationship with the Lord is not deep. We're not going deep with anybody. Everything is superficial, and it's easier that way. And it seems like life is going smooth, but life is not going smooth. We've just not dug beneath the surface. 
And the more and more that we go that direction, guess what begins to happen? Things that are underneath the surface begin to fester. They begin to hurt. They begin to now come out of our lives. And then all of a sudden we find ourselves in a moment of just complete breakdown where we're like, where did all this come from? And it came from the fact that we would not be honest with God. Therefore, we could not be honest with ourselves. Submit to God. Secondly is this, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist the devil. So many times we think, okay, resist the devil. That means I, I don't do this. I don't do this. I don't do this. I don't do this. No, resisting the devil has more to do with what you're doing for the Lord and with the Lord rather than what you're not doing. The more you lean into Jesus, the more you read your word, the more that you worship, the more that you praise, the more that you're a witness for Christ, the more that, that you function in the gifts of the spirit, the more the fruit of the spirit flows out of your life. Guess what you're doing? You're resisting the devil. Every time you read the word of God, you're resisting the devil. Every time you pray, you're resisting the devil. Every time you worship, you're resisting the devil. When you put on the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, you're resisting the devil. He hates it. He doesn't like it. And when you begin to call on the name of Jesus and you begin to worship in the midst of adversity, the devil has to flee. That's no longer his atmosphere. His atmosphere is fear and despair and, and selfishness and anger and bitterness and ungratefulness, unthankfulness. But now you've put on the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Now you're giving thanks. You're giving thanks in everything. Why? Because this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. And the enemy of our soul is coming against us going, no, 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 there can't be Thanksgiving here. There can't, that's just a once a year holiday. That's fine. Why are you giving Thanksgiving? You're going through the worst time of your life. Why are you giving thanks for that? No, 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 no. I can't, I can't, I can't deal with that. He's got to flee. Resisting the devil is not about what you're not doing. It's about what you are doing, who you're leaning into who you're giving the credit for, who you're worshiping, who you're focusing in on. And when you do those things, you are resisting the devil. But when we don't do those things, we are opening ourselves up to the devil. And that's a reality and that's truth. When we don't read the word of God, we're opening up our lives to the enemy. When we don't pray, we're opening up our hearts and our lives to the enemy. You say, well, Scott, I, I don't know if that's true. I mean, Jesus, he, he gives grace. He does, but it, God resists the proud. And if you're not worshiping, and if you're not reading your word, and you're not praying, you're not submitting to God. And if you're not submitting to God, that means that you are doing your own thing the way that you want to do it, which makes us proud. And God resists that. But he gives grace to the humble. So when we see this, submitting to God, resisting the devil, and then it says this in verse eight, draw near to God. Number three, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Draw near to God, press in, lean into God. Listen, that's not a geographical location. It's not like, okay, I've got to go to, uh, hey, I heard there's a six-day revival meeting in Kentucky. If I can just get there, man, I can draw near to God. No, no, no. It's not talking about geographical. Hey, I've got to get to Jerusalem. Listen, in the... In, in, in history, all throughout history, people began to believe, if I can just get to Jerusalem, and listen, that's not just believers. We're talking, about, uh, we're, we're talking about Muslims. We're talking about all manner of different religions. Everyone wanted to take hold of Jerusalem and make it their capital of the world. 
And it was thought that if you could get to Jerusalem, you could be absolved of your sins, or if you could, you could take over Jerusalem. It was all about location, location, location. Is there something about Jerusalem? Absolutely. Is there something in the future when we read the word of God about Jerusalem? Absolutely. But you don't have to be there to draw near to God. You don't have to be in a church sanctuary to draw near to God. You don't have to be in the midst of a, an amazing praise service to, to draw near to God. We can draw near to God right now. We can draw near to God at our job, in our schools. We can draw near to God anywhere at any time. Why? Because Jesus died and he tore the veil and now we don't need anybody else to go in for us to talk to God. Jesus became our mediator. He became the bridge and now we have access to the Father. Draw near to God. When we do those things that resist the devil, we are drawing near to God. It all works together. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Then it says this, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Now, in our current culture, this would sound, oh man, that's harsh. It's not harsh. It's actually wonderful. Draw near to God. He will draw near. Cleanse your hands, number four, you sinners. Cleanse your hands, exterior. But look what it says immediately after that. Purify your hearts, five, inside, you double-minded. Purify your hearts, cleanse your hands, right? Pure hearts, pure motives. Make sure your hands are clean. Inside, outside. So many times we try to put on a facade on the outside and Jesus told those who thought they could do that that they were like whitewashed tombs and they were full of dead men's bones. He was saying there's no life inside of that. You do all of this to be seen, but there's nothing going on inside. You're hollow, you're empty, you're hurting. And here, James says, purify your hands. Exterior does matter, but only, right, purifying your hearts inside out. That just trying to do good things and thinking that'll change your heart is not the way that it goes. It's allowing God to change your heart and then the exterior, with the fruit of that changes. Now it's peace and love and joy, right? Patience, kindness, long-suffering, self-control, right? All of those things now are fruit from what? A pure heart. You know, even the psalmist said, give us clean hands, Lord. Give me, give me clean hands and a pure heart, like, I want to ascend to the hill of the Lord. I want everything you have for me. And so I need clean hands and a pure heart. James is saying, listen, submit to God, resist the devil, draw near to God, cleanse your hands, purify your hearts. And then, verse 9, he, he does like this rapid fire where he puts all this stuff together as if, hey, there is six, seven, eight here, right? Six, seven, eight, nine on the Decalogue, but it's all together. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Now, this doesn't sound amazing to us, like lament. Like, I'm not even sure what that means, Scott, but it doesn't sound awesome. Mourn, right? Mourn, weep. Laughter be turned to mourning. I can't laugh anymore. 
and your joy to gloom. I mean, I've got to be gloomy all the time. I got to be Eeyore on Winnie the Pooh all the time. Like, Like everything's bad. Everything's horrible. That's not what he's saying. Remember who he's writing to. And what has happened? Everything's on the exterior. And they're living selfish lives inside, not submitted to God. They haven't resisted the devil. They haven't cleansed themselves. They haven't purified their hearts. They haven't leaned into the things of God. They've not drawn near to God. They've made the things of God, listen, they've made the things of God a sidebar. You don't have to do it. Just say you believe it and everything will be fine. And James is saying this. Because here's what's happening in this. And this is key for us, y'all. Lean into this. James is saying that you have made the things of God laughable. You have brushed them off as if they were no big deal. And why is he saying this? He's, He's not saying you have to live the rest of your lives like this. He's saying lament and mourn and weep because those are the signs of a repentant heart. He says, let your laughter be turned to mourning. You've been laughing off the things of God and you've made them irrelevant. You're not passing them on to your children. You've taken them so lightly that now even your own children don't follow the precepts of God. And then he says, and your joy to gloom. He's not saying you have to live the rest of your lives like this. He's saying in this moment right now, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Lean in, submit, resist, draw near, cleanse, purify. And when you do that, guess what's going to happen? You're going to lament and you're going to mourn. Why are you going to mourn? Because I have been so far away from God. I haven't given him the honor that he's due. I haven't praised him. I haven't given him the worship that he deserves. I haven't spent time with him. I don't even know him. And that should grieve us. He's not saying your joy to gloom forever. He's just saying in this moment, there needs to be a shifting to realize how precious a relationship with God is. Then he says this in verse 10, to complete the Decalogue, right? The 10 words, the 10 commands. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Humble yourself. He's saying, don't wait to be humbled. I don't know if you've ever been in a place where you've been humbled. And I wasn't gonna share this. I I didn't even have this in my brain, but it seems like the Lord is reminding me of things lately. I can remember in high school, I don't know that I was a super arrogant guy, but I wasn't a super humble guy either. A lot of my mannerisms, my actions, and even my words with my friends were, were all, a, it was all a ruse. It was all a, wasn't that I was trying to be somebody else. It was just, I was trying to hide the reality of what my life had been up to that point. I didn't want to leave myself vulnerable to people so that I would be hurt. And I was, I was pretty good in several sports. I, was, I kind of used that as, a, as a, an outlet 
for my anger and my bitterness and my hurt and my pain. And so I, I took it out on the field or on the court or on the track or on the baseball field. That's, that's where that all came out. Music, it came through music. I had a lot of different outlets that I was always trying to, and I was always trying to make those outlets fill the void that I had because ultimately I was prideful and I was arrogant and I was selfish. And even though I'd been hurt by other people, the way I was dealing with it was not their fault. It was my fault. And I can remember thinking, man, if I can just get through high school, and I can do these things. I can get a scholarship to here, and that'll make everything okay. And I'll go through four years of college, and when I get out of college, I will go pro in something. The mindset was professional baseball player. If that doesn't work out, then I'm going to go to the Olympics for track. If that doesn't work out, then I'm going to become a professional musician, singer in a rock band, right? Half the kids that grow up, you know, that's kind of what you get in your brain. At least when I grew up, that's what you had in your brain. And back then, it was still policemen, firemen, doctors, stuff like that too. But in my mind, man, out front with the mic, the front man of the greatest rock band in the world. Or standing up on the podium with a gold medal or even a silver or bronze. Or throwing the first pitch of my first Major League Baseball game. And I can remember approaching my senior year. Everything was kind of going my way. I got hurt, and that kind of took me off track a little bit. And then some things really started to go sideways in my life, and my family and my household just really started to go sideways. And just as I had used all those things as an outlet, this one moment was going to become the outlet of all the anger and the rage and the hurt and the pain for almost 18 years of my life pent up inside of me that I never gave anybody access to, much less God. And I was at this track meet and I was favored in everything I was running in. State record holder Scott Etheridge is going to be this and this and this and newspaper articles and all those things have been written and I kept those newspaper clippings and I don't think I kept them to, to, to be like, wow, how incredible was that? I can't believe I got to do that. I think I kept it as a validation of who I was. If I could look at that, then it would validate who I was. And I can remember setting up for this one race. It was like the featured race. And this was going to launch me into the senior year, and man, it was on from there. I had already had scholarship offers from these colleges in baseball and track specifically. And I began, I, I can, even in my mind, I can see it now, my feet hitting the track as the race went. And I was on my pace. I, everything was clockwork in my head. I do this at this pole, and when I get to that light pole, I kick into this. And when I get to that light pole, my knees go a little bit higher and my strides go a little bit longer. And when I get to this pole, when I get to that light pole, that's when the all-out sprint to the finish. I've got it. It's clockwork. I've practiced this. I've run it. I've got records. I'm on this. This is who I am. This is my identity. And I did it to a T. And I hit the all-out sprint. And three feet before the finish line, not yards, three feet before the finish line, I just had my eye on the prize. 
And three feet before the finish line in my peripheral vision, I saw someone, and he was on my own team. And I saw his one foot, I literally saw his one foot go across the line right before my foot. And in that moment, every bit of rage and anger and pent-up frustration that I had had in all those years came out in a stadium full of people at night in Heber Springs, Arkansas. I screamed, I yelled, I cussed. You could hear it echo through the whole stadium. If you've ever been to a track meet, you know that all this stuff is going on everywhere. There's high jumping and there's long jumping and there's, there's pole vaulting and there's this and this. There are all these things going on, but everything stopped because Scott was having a meltdown in public. See, it wasn't private behind closed doors. It wasn't with my family. It was very public. And all these people who thought they knew who I was for years now got to see behind the curtain of everything in my life. And I can remember taking my track shoes off, my spikes, and I can remember just hurling them, just throwing them, not even realizing where they would go. And one actually hit the football scoreboard. I don't know if it took out a light, but just slammed against the scoreboard and you could hear it reverberate. And again, everybody got quiet and all eyes were on me. And the next voice I heard was my coach screaming and running all the way across the football field full sprint and leaping and grabbing me and pulling me up like this just in my face. And I can remember him walking me to the locker room and I can remember him sitting me in a chair right in front of his desk and saying, stay here until the meet is over, don't move. And oddly enough, he sat me in the chair and when I looked at the wall behind his desk, it was a big board, what we would know as a whiteboard. And on that whiteboard with the plexiglass was all the records of all the track stars of Heber Springs history. And I was staring at my name over and over and over again. What I thought defined me was about to be over. And my name would be erased from that board one day. And then I would no longer know who I was. And I can remember just being humbled in that moment, broken. Thinking, what did I just do? Like I'm going to be in the newspaper again, but not for breaking records. And I can remember that coach walking in and sitting in that chair and staring me right in the face, just like I'm looking in this camera right now. And I can remember the tears running down his face and saying, I love you and I believe in you so much, but I can't have you on this team. And I can remember being so broken in that moment. And you would think in that moment, things would shift in my life, but it just took me the other way. I left Arkansas, I went to back to my home state of Michigan and I thought it would be like it was when I was in the seventh grade and how many of you know you can't go back? It wasn't that way. When I called back home and said, hey, I gotta come back to Arkansas, you know what they said? Nope, sorry, we're not coming to get you. Humbled. And I can remember my uncle calling me and saying, Scott, me and your aunt are gonna be up there and you can ride in the back of our truck for 13 hours back to Arkansas. We'll take you back. 
And I can remember being in that Dodge truck with a camper on top of it with the little rolling windows out, laying on a mattress in the back of that truck for almost 13 hours driving back to Arkansas and realizing when I got back to there, I was going to have to face all the people that I embarrassed myself in front of. You say, well, how did that get you to here? All of that had a part to play when at 25 years old, I met Jesus right back in that town in front of those same people that saw me in that stadium. But when they saw the pride and the arrogance in that stadium, they saw the humility of a 25-year-old, not a prideful, arrogant 18-year-old, but a 25-year-old on his face before God, repenting, resisting the devil, submitting to God, drawing near to God, cleansing his hands, purifying his heart, lamenting, mourning, weeping, before God, humbling himself in the sight of the Lord. And for the last 27 and a half years, those same people have been able to watch the fruit of my life, not perfect, but the fruit of my life as I have followed Jesus and he has been gracious and merciful to me to bless me and to pour out his favor upon my life. Decalogue, 10 commands. Not just one promise, but 10 words, 10 commands that if we will step into those, God will raise us up. He will lift us up. He will lift us up, right? He will give us grace. Why? Because we humble ourselves. I don't want God to resist me, so I'm going to resist the devil. And I know that if I humble myself in his sight, he will lift me up. And if I stay on that path, everything I do and everything I say in his name, it will draw all the attention to him and none to me. I don't know where you're at today. And I know this is a little bit different. And I know I went a little bit longer, but I really felt, I just really felt led of the Holy Spirit to share that story with you. Stories of our brokenness and moments where it seemed like everything was gone, they inspire others who feel like they're in that same scenario, that there is hope, right? And so hopefully today, you have received hope, an infusion of hope into your life today. Today, you have said, you know what? I'm tired of hiding everything. I just wanna be honest with God. I just wanna submit to God. I wanna draw near to God. I wanna resist the devil. I wanna do all those things we've talked about, Scott, the Decalogue, I want to step into that. Then you can today. I've just given you the instruction manual on how to do it. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Not just one promise. 10 words that will not lead you to a better life, right? We always leading me to a better life. No, no, no. It will lead you to a kingdom life which has an eternal reward. It goes beyond space and time of this world right now. It gives us the opportunity to have a hope that's eternal. And that's what we get in Jesus. Listen, if the Lord has put something in your heart, if the Lord has done something in your life, I say this every week, and I don't know that we get as many responses as I want. We want to hear from you. I want to hear what the Lord has done in your life today. Right now, as you've been watching this, have you been listening to this? 
What is God doing in your life? Let us know. MediaHub at thpshreveport.com. Prayer requests, testimonies. What is the Lord doing? What is the Lord saying? Listen, I love you, and I speak the favor and the blessing of the Lord over your life and your family. In the name of Jesus, amen.